0: Radio Folk University's talk show. Taking old school viral. I'm your host, Manda Ofox Gillespie. Today's episode is produced in collaboration with Cortez Currents. What's current on Cortez and beyond? Welcome, neighbor. Thank you so much for joining us today on CKTZ 89.5. FM Cortez Community Radio. This is Folk You Radio's 101 show. I wanted to stop start today with just a moment where I ask you, wherever you are, neighbor, to take one moment, this tiny bit of time, to acknowledge the land that you are on. To acknowledge those people that stewarded the land before you were here. I would like to acknowledge that I am on land that was stewarded and unseated by the Klahoos, the Sliaman, and the Hamako people. I would also like to take a moment that I am getting to recognize that I am benefiting from this beautiful radio station that was put together by many members of this community, some long since gone, and some still here, who worked tirelessly because they believed in a dream of communicating via radio across space and time and place. So these are just some of the acknowledgments that I want to make today that are allowing me to bring this radio station here. I think this is particularly timely today because we are doing a show that I'm really excited about where we're looking a little bit deeper into our forest and our lands. Um, and I called the show Board Reality 101 as in B-O-A-R-D. So I'm referring to a piece of wood And I want to ask in the show, what is a tree? What are our forests to us? How do we go deeper into the question about what it means to steward and live with the land and the resources that we are given? So we are really lucky uh, in this community to have a partnership between the Clahoose First Nations and the non- nation members of Cortez in creating a forest managed by our community. So I am still learning about some of the details of that, um, and when advertising the show, I did get some of the details wrong. So we are going to really learn today the the details uh, and the and just the unique aspect of that and. Um, and look deeper into this question of what, how we use our forest and how we let the forest be served by us. Maybe it's how we serve our forest and let this forest be served by us. So the first person on, uh, I am really excited to welcome. Welcome back, Mark Lombard to Folk you Radio. Listeners may remember that Mark has been on before to the show. He's discussed fire strategies for Cortez, resiliency strategies for the island. And today he is here as, I'm going to mess it up, as a manager of, the, of some aspect of the Forest Co-op Project. And so he's going to tell us a little bit more about his actual title and what is happening around this special partnership and the forest and wood ecosystems of the island. Welcome, Mark.
1: Thanks, Manda. Nice to be back here at C- CKTZ in Clahoos Traditional Territory. <clears throat> I liked your introduction. Um, it's timely and, and uh, it's exciting moment in the community forest right now because we're just finishing our first all Cortez crew logging project. Um, we're completing a, an intermediate harvest in the Coulter Bay area of the community forest. Uh, we, we're doing a thinning project on 6.9 hectares of forest <clears throat> and it's a it's a real interesting challenge because there's forest health issues and uh individual tree selection and thinning is expensive and and you know more difficult work to to do a really good job and the team is doing a really good job so it's a good time to to talk about the community forest the partnership is the is the licensee the partnership that you mentioned with Clahoose And the the formal acronym is the Cortez Forestry General Partnership, partnership, so CFGP. Most of the things that are on the Tideline, the the logo is the CFGP. And the CFGP is responsible to the province to manage the forest in such a way that it achieves the goals of the community forest system that was set up 15 or so years ago. There's about 52 or three community forests operating in the province. And so the partnership... In, you know, there's a, there's a long history to it that goes back now 25 years, and several people on Cortez have been involved r- right from the beginning. Um, but in the latest iteration, the, the the partnership was awarded a license in 2013. We we've been working on the application since 2011. the The initiative was gotten off the ground by the Clahoose First Nation, who had. Asked some directors who had been involved in the previous iteration of the community forest attempt on the island, the Cortez Ecoforestry Society. They looked at applying again to the ministry to, to for a community forest. And when the part when the province indicated that there was uh, a positive response to that, the partnership was formed. And so the Clahoos has has an entity in their forestry operation that is responsible for the community forest on cortez among other forestry operations that they have and they are a part of the community forest partnership they appoint three directors to the cfgp and then on the non clahu side of the partnership the the co-op was formed the co-op model was chosen because it's expected in a small community that people who are involved in the forest sector and the value-added sector will be maybe Part of the co-op and maybe appointing directors to the to the co-op and so the cortez community forest co-op was formed as a 50 50 partnership with gluhus in what's now called the cfgp
0: and just to clarify the this land the the general partnership overseas um that is crown land is that right so it's crown land that would often be managed by by who if we weren't managing it who manages it
1: crown land in the province that's that's considered managed forest land publicly owned managed forest land is typically allocated to what they call the major licensees for for logging they 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 log and replant on you know to run a forest sector
0: Okay. So it's so you mentioned that there are a couple other co-op models in the province. So this is still a relatively new model to allow the the local community to have this kind of management role. Is that is that true?
1: It is, but back to the beginning and sort of your goal of clarifying the the, the nature of things. It's <clears throat> it is not the co-op a lot of people I, I hear people say you know the co-op because they maybe hear a little bit more communication from the co-op or maybe they're members in the co-op but the co-op isn't the licensee so the co-op isn't the community for us the community for us the community forest is is a type of a license it's a type of license allocated to communities and the CFGP the partnership holds the license so the co-op is a is a partner in the in the in the CFGP
0: that that I understand. Got it. <laughs> okay, so the if we're going to compl- conflate anything, um, it is then we should conflate the community forest with a C F G P. The CFGP, the CFGP
1: uh, or the partnership for as uh, shorthand. Yeah.
0: Um, okay, and then the co op is just one is basically just overseeing the three non Klahoose representatives to this partnership
1: well the the co-op has a board of directors they have a membership that has annual general meetings i think the one is coming up on the 23rd they have a board of directors that are elected and they carry out the business of the organization and and the organization has several interests and values that the membership holds dear and they conduct those those affairs but they're also responsible to appoint three directors to the cfgp and typically those directors who are appointed to the CFGP to the to the partnership are also directors of the co op so that they are part of the conversation and understand the dynamic of what's being discussed and what the will of the membership is and how does that get translated into a workable proposal to, to as a partner to the partnership because the input comes from from both partners.
0: And then so can you tell us more specifically about your role and what you do than with the community forest, and why? Why you? Why you'd want to?
1: Well, we can do a quick thing on my role. Uh, the The partnership has a, has six board members, and they set up the policy and governance structures that or, that the organization needs. And then there are staff to carry out the instructions and and the policies that the, the board sets. So I'm the manager. The operations manager, so I, I effectively carry out the will of the board. <clears throat> decide where we're going to build road, where we're going to log, where we're not going to log. Um, I'm working on the ground-truthing plan with with several volunteers, who to, you know, identify basically the ground truth of the, the the VRI, the vegetative resource inventory, just to basically get a little, quick, check of how accurate is the ministry's provincial data on on the forests. And it's actually pretty accurate for the most part. There's some heights and ages that are a little bit off, but it's it's not too bad. So I b- basically take care of the day-to-day operations of the partnership. I used to be a director on the partnership and a director with the co-op uh, at the beginning for the first maybe four or five years, and then I stepped down to take on the day-to-day management role.
0: And I, I know a little bit about your background um, uh, because you are a well-known and a really incredible uh, ecological builder and not just like any green builder, but really going for some of the most uh, passive, least impact um, kind of building. So can you talk a little bit about your own background and how that led you to to managing <laughs> a community forest or you know how you get to the place um of of feeling like you can manage a forest um and the and the kind of oppositional nature of needing to both use and protect our forests
1: you know i look at the management role as i to the extent that i can i try to take it on with some humility you know we don't really know what the future holds How do we? how do we ostensibly manage a, a, a natural system or a resource for hundreds of years you know there could be all kinds of things that happen and who are we to project that i also you know i would just say that there's a san- there's a sanity to it for me because i'm doing it with chief kevin pc and with kathy francis and with the team from kohus billy barnes and georgina Silby, and that's a, a real solid footing to be on and and it and it and it gives a sense of it, it gives a good sense of direction in terms of what can be achieved and what should be achieved. So that, that's, that helps a lot. Um, and I'm kind of similar to Nick. We came out from the East coast, both of us. I'm a little bit older than he is, but I did the same kind of work that he did on, on out East as a logging contractor running forwarders. And, um, he r- ran a machine that, cuts and processes trees, which I think he's going to talk about. I, and we ran, both ran forests, which take the trees out of the forest, and we both did falling and worked on it from that end. I did some road building, and um, I've always been in, interested in community forest since I came to BC, and I studied a little bit of community forest policy when I was doing grad school um, 15 years ago, another lifetime in Vancouver. And uh, the opportunity came to Cortez. When I came to Cortez, some people who had been working on getting the partnership going back when, when it had been revisited with Clahouse in 2011, some of the people who were all involved back then came and asked if, I'd, if I would consider joining the board, and, and I did, and the rest is as it is.
0: <laughs> so um, can you talk a little bit about then what all the bits and pieces that are at play in a community forest? You, I imagine. I mean, uh, I imagine his his eyes got really big. You can't see that when you're on radio. But <laughs> there, should <laughs> <laughs> yeah. there should be a sound effect. There should be a sound effect uh, So I imagine there's there there's a lot. But if you could, like, I can only begin to imagine that there's bureaucracy handed down to you. Like you are going to have to do these things. There is. We all can imagine a little bit of how many different uh, agendas and needs there are in the Cortez community itself, what what the different members there are going to want. I imagine the Kaluhus has their own version um, of the exact same thing, needs, um, interest, issues. And then also you are you know, you're also responsible in the health and the longevity of this forest ecosystem for the future. So can you can you flush out a little bit more of the complexity um, and how you find harmony within those different forces?
1: Let me just think, have I found harmony <laughs> within any of those forces yet? I'm not sure. No, I'm it's it's things are reasonably harmonious at the moment. Um, where to start on that one? There's a series of regulations that govern forest activities on public land, which are extensive. There are WorkSafe BC rules that govern industrial activities such as forestry in BC, which is sensible to have because it's a dangerous industry and there needs to be standards. Community forests are a lot about community values and expressing the values that are held by the community and, and... and then the job, once the values are expressed, is to try to find a balance between those, as you mentioned. The, some of the core principles or vision, you know, mission statement, vision kind of things that have been developed by the community for us, both the partnership and the, and the co-op over the years, are about local economic development and providing opportunity for entrepreneurs, diversifying the economy. A little bit, not just be a tourism or a shellfish economy, but woodworking and building and value added and forestry and so on. Those are strong criteria. The project that we're currently undertaking is, you know, it's not very profitable because it's a small project and it's thinning. So it's expensive and it's just to supply the logs to the local mills because it's a, it's a, you know, it's an important part of our economy and we need to, we need to, to do that that's a commitment we've made to the to the local mills and it's made quite a bit of firewood for the community which is a real positive thing and a really important thing and a, and a very challenging thing to balance just because the the value of the of the wood isn't very isn't valued very highly and the whole for, in firewood model basically the way the firewood system works it doesn't place a lot of value on the trees but they still have to be cut down and brought to roadside and it has to all be planned so there's there's a lot of factors but i have a a good team that I work with. Ioni Brown is our forester and she takes care of our our all of the things that are required of a signing forester. She takes care of the government a lot of the government correspondence and all of the actual reporting of the specific forestry activities. And we have an engineer, Matt Cassiano, who's an island resident and another entrepreneur who I work with on, you know, building road and design and layout design for the harvests and so that so that's helpful to as I said have the team of the partnership of the directors. Who we've been working, you know, we have a consensus team, consensus consensus decision making model. Sorry, at the partnership, and then a good team of staff. It 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 makes it makes it workable.
0: Um, I I admire that you can use consensus and workable in the same (laughs) sentence. So, uh, um, and at a previous show, you talked about how the community forest might be going for some wildfire protection uh, planning funds. Um, is that still on the table? Uh, and, is it looking good that we might be able to apply for some funds for that in the future?
1: I guess since I last spoke to you, we, uh, have applied for some funds and it's, it's looking very positive and likely that it will be, it will be, uh, we'll get some of the money and the criteria for the, for a lot of the funding now is they would like to, they would like to keep building on investments they've already made. So now that they've already made two investments here and the last one was a lot of it included treatment for a community forest area or some part of the land base, they are saying that they would like to, to follow up on those investments to, to get the work done. And so I think we have a really good chance of getting it. But I don't want to take all of Nick's time because I think Nick's going to talk about this as well. The, okay, the fire awesome. Aspect.
0: Um, that's really exciting. Congratulations. And um, so uh, as... As I uh, let you go, one of the things that I want to ask you is what are some of the things you want to make sure that I ask Nick about?
1: I don't have anything that comes right to mind for that, <laughs> that I want you to ask Nick about.
0: Um, okay, well, we, I, we're we going to have a moment of, of music um, while I... Uh, Safely six feet away, escort one guest out, and then bring our next guest and Thank you so much uh Mark. I really appreciate you taking the time to to be on the show and all the exciting stuff that is happening um, because of of the kind of attention that you and the partnership are bringing to this
1: thank you and that was uh that was the most whirlwind tour of the community forest paradigm ever Good job. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Hello, and welcome back, neighbor. You are listening to CKTZ 89.5 FM, Cortez Community Radio. I didn't get a chance to introduce that song earlier, and I wanted to, because we are, as we are all hunkering down together, spending far too much time alone in our own minds, um, we are lucky on this island to have... Lots and lots of musicians, who many of who have been spending this time making beautiful new music, uh, often about this time and the experiences that are happening during this time, and this includes uh, our local band called the Awakeneers. You may know them uh, previously, and uh, their Mary McKenty manifestation. And we just listened to a song called "The Four Directions," which was just released. Um, they are trying to release a new song every week. So we will get a couple more songs from them in this episode, and I'll try to uh, bring you even more things. So thank you so much to the Waceneers for letting us uh, preview Preview? Uh, your song for you. And I am quite pleased to have with me now, uh, having taken the place of Mark, um, Nick Gagnon, I, I may have butchered his, his, his name. Nick Gagnon? Close enough. Close enough. Okay. We won't, we we, you know, try saying Manda O'Fox Gillespie a few times. Um, <laughs> so I met Nick soon after he first came to the island, and I was immediately impressed with you and your falling skills and your deep love of the forest. Uh, And others may know you in one of your many other hats, including being a member of the Community Forest or one of our, our only mechanics on the island. So I was thinking that you might start by introducing yourself and telling us a little bit more about your background and where you came from, this amazing, talented man.
2: I came here from Northern Ontario. I was born and raised there by trappers and loggers and farmers and, and my brother. And, and, uh, we, I grew up in a silviculture company. We were like this neat little niche, um, back when, you know, the government had a whole bunch of money to do all sorts of fun stuff and, and it was really cool. We had the, like the newest fandangled equipment and we were doing all this thinning and and I was just in love with logging, even from a little kid. Like I had all the Tonkas, I had the whole logging operation going in the backyard. Like I've just always sort of had that obsession, you know, and 2008 came around and all of that just went away. Like we had to go full pin logging, like full corporate, like level it. And I just, you know, it was really hard. So we, we kept moving and we, we just kept finding our niche and, and moving along in and that. And within that you know, that's where I got my mechanics background was just like this, this, like like all our dinner table conversations, everything was around this logging company and that's all we did. And so I just like, you know, we just worked at stuff and I really got my gears for mechanics there and I really got my gears for understanding the forest and, and my brother who raised me is just like an absolute silviculture expert. Like he's just been gone through the whole thing, right through um, you know, right up to the 80s. And he's also the guy who pretty much raised me. So I can accredit him with the majority of my, my knowledge base in the forest for sure.
0: So what is Sylvan
2: culture? Silviculture. culture. So silva is the Latin word for wood. And um silva culture is the tending of forest lands. Essentially everything up until the point of the final commercial harvest um so that's everything from like clearing underbrush to even replanting a forest to tending a planted forest and and you know some some silviculture applications are as simple as going in and just removing the dead limbs from the trees so that they grow clear lumber from then on out so you can like if you were doing your own private little silviculture application like there's no end to it whereas traditional like large like industrialized silviculture is usually just the removal of understory or things that are going to die out anyway and capturing mortality so you can go into a forest that's got you know like 1200 trees in an area where there should only be 800 trees so those 400 trees are going to die anyway and so you'll go in there and take those out before they die and so, very rarely does it actually produce like a commercial value wood, and that's sort of one of the aspects we're going at in the community forest. Here is I think that that wood has value. I know it has value. We just need to sort of put it up.
0: The the mortality wood, like the wood that wouldn't have uh, been able to grow up in a healthy forest that was burning regularly or etc. So the sort of extra wood, is that what you're saying? How you believe that has value?
2: Yeah. Like if the whole forest was clear cut and it, let's say, or it burned to a crisp and it was all coming up in the canopy closed, there'll be like some other trees that started a little late or just didn't get the nutrition and they'll be coming up in this closed canopy and you can see them. They're just like totally dying. and And the other trees in the forest, like they're there and they're just... They, they help each other out, right? So you can see the trees around it will be helping the one struggling tree. And and so by taking that struggling tree out, you'll see, like we call it releasing in, in the forest, but you'll you'll see them just, just exceptionally like, just grow more, better, just like weeding the garden, right? You're going to take those like less producing, like if you got that tomato plant that's just hanging on by a thread, just pull it out of there, right? And everybody else is going to do better because sick trees take up more nutrients and more water than than healthy living trees.
0: And you mentioned that things started changing, was it in 2008? Um, Can you, I don't know uh, uh, the history of of, of silviculture or logging, so can you talk to uh, us a little bit about what changed then?
2: in the recession of 2008 and the crash of the housing market in the united states it just it sort of screwed up all the lumber prices and so the way the the silviculture was generally done was that the government would would take a a stumpage fee which is a pretty traditional practice the government takes so many dollars for every tree you take off the stump generally by the cubic meter and before 2008 it was upwards of like 12 or 13 dollars so for every cubic meter that a corporation cut off a crown land you know, the government got this coffer filled with like thirteen dollars a cubic meter. Two thousand eight happens, all the sawmills are freaking out, they're all gonna lose their shirt, they're doing they're lobbying the government. So the government goes and slams the stumpage fee down to uh, you know, it's just a guess, but around two dollars a cubic meter, which means there's no there's no more extra money for that extra stuff. There's like just enough money to manage the the Crown Land as it is from the government perspective. And so there goes all that extra funding. And and traditionally like It's a really good thing. I mean, you use that for your silviculture, use it to replant and do all these cool things. And then they loaned that $2 a cubic meter to those corporations and then forgave the debt. So that created a huge lack of government infrastructure, government money to, to, to manage the, the silviculture practices. And, and, and it's like a 20 year return thing. Like if you go and do a silviculture application on a forest, you can, it could be 40, 30 20 years before that shows even a return and so you can imagine from corporate strategy standpoint it's like let's worry about next quarter never mind next century and so that just really just fell off the map and it's really interesting to see now that the corporations have gone through some of the areas that we have done silviculture in and and they pretty much call you and they're like oh my god the wood in there it was so nice and so clean and and we never get that long of trees or, or they're just never that volume per stump. It was like super cool and we're like yeah can we keep doing it and they're like well you got to worry about next quarter
0: so when did you end up leaving um and to come to to cortez to come to bc
2: it's a really interesting decision to leave ontario that we did i we we had a family woodlot it's really cool. it's like close to like 2,000 acres. We like purchased it as a family. We like worked at it. My brother and I just like went out a whole summer, no paychecks, just like bought an old dump truck and filled it up with fuel. And we got the excavator and we cut the road out and we, we accessed the land. That's five kilometers. And, and anybody who builds forest road knows that that's not cheap or a small endeavor whatsoever. We accessed it, we, we, we started doing our, our applications on it, our prescriptions. We started pulling lumber from it and timber from it and, and organizing it. And, and that was like, it was like, we did it like we got there, we're done. And, and then my brother had like a sawmill going and we would like bring wood from our woodlot to the sawmill. It was all very sweet, like from the stump right to the saw. From the seed to the saw, like we were, we were seeding the land and, and, and cutting our trees and turning them into lumber. And it was like full-fledged one end of the other. And, and I was actually left with this like loss of sense of purpose. And also like before we really got there, we had like a huge debt load because we had all this equipment and the money was rolling in 2008. And then that really got sort of strangleholded. So to get the debt load down with, without that original like revenue stream that you accepted the debt on got like okay we really gotta get this done and we we got the debt hammered down, we got the wood lot done. My brother's like in his sixty, I think he just turned sixty the other day. So and my mom's sorta of the same age. He's my half brother. So yeah, so they're like him and my mom are kind of the same age and they're like on this like super cool like semi retired login thing and and I just went, like I have a loss of sense of purpose. I don't have any stress. I don't have anything. Wait a minute, I'm twenty five years old is this even my dream? It's done anyway. Like I could sit here and just, you know, recycle this, you know, and just keep going through these motions, or I can I need to go learn more. I need to know more. I need to go learn everything there is to do in in the forest. I need to learn silviculture. How is planting trees really done? Because I would tend these planted blocks and go, freaking tree planters, I like could be yelling at them. You know from my machine trying to organize what it was they planted at you know 25 years later and i went like let's just go so ashley and i just like packed up our toyota truck and a little travel trailer and and we just took off like we got no kids we got no debt we got a dog like what are we waiting for let's just go see where we want to live in canada we made a checklist of communities like what we would need in a community. And we just started traveling. We did the Yukon, Northwest Territories, and did piecework in between, like silviculture piecework and learned the tree planting industry. And And we got to Cortez and we're like, oh, well, winter on Cortez, and we'll hit the road in the summer, you know? And we like landed a year-round rental downtown Manson's in Cor- on Cortez. And we're like, oh, sweet, you know, within a week. And everyone's like, oh my God, you got a year-round rental? Like, oh, okay, so that's super cool. Within the end of six months, like we went for one more planting season, but it was like, we were obviously just getting sucked into Cortez and locked down here. Like there was no leaving. It just had more work than I knew what to do with. And in that interim, like both mechanic, like there was other mechanics around. They kind of left. And I just seen this like huge potential. And there was a community forest here, which we had started looking into in Ontario. We were like, what, why isn't there community forest? Like these sawmills are like hundreds of kilometers apart. And it just seems like maybe if we just did a little one, like we have a sawmill, why can't we, you know, capture from the local wood basket that's 10 miles away? Like we're sending logs a hundred kilometers away and trading them for logs and shipping them back a hundred kilometers. And it just, and there was just so much pushback because it's such a razor thin world, the logging. And so you say community forest, you're trying to express all the positivities that can happen, but all the like down homey, you know, loggers and stuff are like, whoa, you're messing with my job. And that's like, right, I am right. I'm, I'm, I'm poking at the corporations that give you your job. I'm, I'm poking around the politics. I'm trying to change policy. My brother, Pierre, who raised me, he, like he had a, 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 um, a term in Queens Park as a right hand to the minister of natural resources. And, and he came back from that job and going like, there's like some concrete foundations that you're just not going to move without some serious serious work.
0: This is uh I really appreciate you bringing this up because I I don't feel like I got to get into this enough with Mark, but it's that the 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 rarity, how difficult, how many um I started the show with talking about our ancestors and the people that came before and just when I think about how the vision and the effort that would that must have gone on for us to have a community forest, uh, you're really bringing that home. And so do you have a sense of uh, how rare that is across Canada?
2: When I look at the community forests across Canada, like one of the ones that we planted within was out in like McBride, B.C. And, and they just sort of like, I wouldn't say that like copy, and paste, but it's sort of like business as usual. Like they're not into what cortez community forest is into like like they just took over their management from whatever it was like i didn't look into the history of it or anything but it just seemed pretty business as usual they probably changed a lot of cool things and it pro- probably creates a lot more revenue for their community but there you have like they didn't really like push or change the structure whereas i look at the cortez community forest and it's like everything's up for debate why are we doing it this way well it works good that way. well why why is it? Is it cost effective? Can we cost effectively do it a different way? Like everyone's willing to ask the questions and then to like jump through the hurdles and see if it's possible. And if it is possible, then everyone's willing to try. And like, that's like, you just don't get that. Like I said, like you would even just bring up the concept of doing anything differently in logging. And the loggers are already just so beat up and worn down and they only ever get price drops. They don't like, hey, here's an extra five bucks a cubic meter. Like you just don't see that as a logger. And so... Here you have on Cortez where everyone's willing to make those adjustments. And and we've seen that in in this last block that we did. Like, it's, it's like really cool. And it's nice to see the local, like the people who live around that block. And like, that's their backyard, really. Like, you know, they go for walks in there and and they're like, you know, they're like approaching Mark on the ferry and going like, wow, it looks amazing. And here we have this like wonderful balance of both visual appeal and logical application. Like Mark said, like, it's a balance to find. And like, we'll see a tree and we're like, well, we could take it like legally and within the prescription, like we could totally take that tree. But man, is it ever pretty? Is it ever tall? Is it ever robust? Is it ever like a nice genetic specimen and look at the visual appeal of it and look at the way it sort of completes the forest spectrum. Like when you look into a forest and you see that the the spectrum, like the density of trees and as they increase or decrease, like, you know, it grabs that. So then you have like this visual appeal. And so we're logging with taking both of those things into account. Because when you drive down this road in 15 years and you look into that cut block, it's, it's just gonna look better and better as time goes on. And that's what we need is that visual appeal because we can't sit down with every single person in this community and explain to them why we take every single tree. Like that's just too ornery. But also in the, in the same respect, like we need to understand why it is we're leaving things. So there is visual appeal, there's logical approach and all those things. And it just seemed like naturally we just balanced it. We trusted our intuitions on it as well as followed the prescription. And the outcome was like n- better than we even thought it was going to be on our own perspective. So
0: so can you talk, walk us through what private logging I mean, first of all, define what that is, and then tell me what does it look like on Cortez most of the time?
2: Private land, logging someone's private land. Right. So so that off, often is like a whole negotiation between what, what the landowner wants. Like some people just want a, a nice big spot clear cut so they can like have some pasture or what have you. But a lot of people with a sizable amount of land on this island are looking at their land. A lot of them bought clear cuts from island timber or or um blowdale or whatever back in the day and they have these large parcels of land and now they've grown up twenty five years and they're like totally ripe for the picking. They capture mortality. They're a little tight. They're not really tended. A lot of them, like when they bought that land, like had little roads and trails going through it, which is a lot of maintenance to keep up. And so it's really interesting when we do go and approach like a piece of private land, we'll go in there and like we'll thin it. We'll We'll pull out like a good grade of firewood and some saw logs and everything. And when everything's all, you know, we make an original deal, but it's, it's really fun because then we really get to play. Then we really get to like, you know, hang around. So we'll reestablish everyone's trails. We'll give them like three years, four or five years supply of firewood. Like we trade, or sometimes we'll take their saw logs and bring them down to the mill for them, bring them back up in lumber. And we sort of make this really... It's just fun because we use like every little piece of resource there is because we're not constricted by anything. So a lot of private landowners just get us up there and we just freshen it up and they look and they go, wow, it's like visually appealing to look at my forest. I've got more access to my land. I got all this firewood done. There's a check in my hand. And, you know, I've got a pile of lumber behind my house. Like, wow, sweet, you know.
0: Okay, so I'm pretty excited about this idea because one... Uh, I now, ever since I I did the wildfire show <laughs> that Mark was also on, I just look around all the time at the many uh, forest lands on on Cortez, m- much of which uh, in my area is privately owned, and and it's just this deep wall of green which we learned from the bc wildfire people is exactly what you don't want because that is where you get out of control wildfires that are super hot really dangerous and you can't deal with with and so that i i look around and i'm like oh no <laughs> like the whole forest is gonna go up in Holo cortez and but then i think like doing anything about it seems so expensive and cost prohibitive prohibitive it Is that true or is it when like when you started talking, you're like, oh, there could be logs out of it. Oh, you can get your firewood from it. Um, How like how could those arrangements work or how have those arrangements worked with with you? And um, and I think you're talking about your company. Um, So maybe also tell me a little bit about your company.
2: So I'll start off with the first part of that. Yeah, it depends on what you got in your forest, really, and and how valuable it is to me and how I can market it to offset my costs. And at the end, like I can usually tell by looking at it standing, but to go into like a small piece of private land, let's say make a fire break or even just bring all the brush up to like 50 feet, which means if you do have that small ground fire, like you you can't use that ladder fuel, like those medium sized dying or dry trees to hop up to the canopy. And that gives like our local fire departments and stuff time to get there. So it depends on really what I'm taking out. And then also it's your land. Like you can effectively just go in and go, oh, yeah, like take like those 10 out there and I'll get more light on my garden or I'll get more light into my yard or I'll have, you know, less branches on my sweeping into my driveway every year or those kinds of things. So it depends on the value you have. And then while I'm there, like if I'm, if I can turn, like take the, I, we can marginalize that profit and then do strictly civil culture work, which is like, you know, net loss for me. Like there's nothing of value coming from it, you know, besides if we chip it or, you know, so there's nothing real of, of value coming out of it. Then that's one story. But if you've got some volume that I can monetize, then, then we can make a deal there where it costs you very little and you get a ton of work done.
0: I'm pretty excited about this. <laughs> okay, so then the uh, this is this is a trick question because I didn't tell you I was going to uh, ask you about this, but I am very curious and about the the other uh, forested lands on on Cortez um, and in the surrounding community that is not crown, it is not community forest, it is owned by big private. Uh, logging companies usually um how do they work and what is the the potential for or the downside of having big tracts of land um that are owned by these private companies and how much of the land here is is that i've heard as much people saying oh yeah 50 percent of the forest here is owned by private um logging companies but i i actually have no idea do you
2: yeah if you look at the map it looks pretty close to half and half and and it's like it's cut in half like the worst way it's like they have like a strip across the island and and the way those things work too is like when you take your let's say we take our community forest wood and we travel across our land they usually want you know a stipend for that or or we it's a whole we have to enter this whole realm of negotiation To be able to operate on or near their land or cross their land or use their land in any way and so that gets a little complex because they do sort of of cut us off that being said they haven't come here in like 15 years to cut on cortez because i think that the public backlash and there's a lot of reasons why they haven't bothered but that means that they're also kind of behind on cutting on cortez so if they did want to come here they'd probably want to do a big giant cut and they'd probably have a huge public backlash for that, I'm assuming, judging by, you know, the, the, the way the public receives it when you when you talk about it. That being said, the dream here, prospectively, would be that they're willing to play ball with us and let us manage their lands on Cortez, they can keep them, but just let us manage them the way we're managing the community forest and let our team, our local team, let, let us cut it uh, to that standard. You know, and there we have like a win, win, win to me. Like they, I mean, just think about bringing 40 guys here and 10 pieces of equipment. Like that's like a, a fifty, hundred dollars $100,000 mobilization. Where are you going to camp 50 guys up? Where, where are you going to do all this? Like, you know, the logistics make less and less sense as they, you know, but they would want to come here and cut millions of dollars to be able to offset that cost. And so the only way around that is to let, maybe we should, let, they should let our community forest management manage it. I think that would be the ultimate dream, prospectively, and I, I think they're probably going to be willing to do it if, if they can't really logically come here and, and, and make sense of doing it financially any other way.
0: Have you ever heard of that happening anywhere else before with community forests?
2: no. No I haven't, I haven't That doesn't seen. mean it can't happen. That There's lots happen. of
0: firsts here. Um, and that's one of the things that I um, appreciate uh, about you is that I when I know you, I look at your entrepreneurial spirit um, and you know, like if we can if we can imagine it, then we can realize it uh, here on this community. and I, I, I see you manifest that all the time which leads to uh the next thing i wanted to ask you about um which is uh you talk a lot and use this term of a lifestyle business and um and i want to know what that means uh to you and how you see it manifesting on cortez
2: so so when you're an entrepreneur you're like okay how do I build a business? Like, how do I even piece this together? What even is it? What do I need to do? And you go, you know, you dig around and you do some reading and you realize that as soon as it comes to the point where your business needs like any kind of investment or you're building a business plan, like no investor, no money wants to see anything but like full on accelerate like to the moon and we're going to make a million dollars and we're going to make $2 million and I'm going to own 5% or whatever. Like, and, and it's like, what's wrong with making a hundred grand a year? Like what's wrong with making $150,000 a year? Like if, if you've, if you've put that on yourself, like, and like, like it's all where you're going, it suddenly sort of seems a little bit more relaxing. You're not trying to build this giant entity that you can sell off in 15 years for 20 million bucks and spend the rest of your time in the Bahamas or wherever you want to go. And, and a lifestyle business is something that also incorporates your whole lifestyle. Like I get to come, I come do a tree job at your place and it's like, woohoo, we're like hanging out. We're like friends. Like you, you get to interact with your community. As soon as you come out of that threshold of growth, like all of a sudden you're just talking, you're just emailing people you've never met and you're exporting over here to this community you've never been to. And it's this whole, like, it becomes very not so personal. And I don't know how many people I've seen have like this wonderful lifestyle business. And they, they grow to this point where they feel like they must reinvest or sort of explode outside of their current margins or or their, their current market. And they, they get out there and then they go, well, now my business isn't, isn't impersonal. Like I had to drop this person I've been working with for 15 years because they can't supply me with the supplies I need anymore. Or this trucking company, this little local trucking company I used, I can't use them anymore because I need so much more volume and they can't handle that. And, and you just kind of lose that touch. And so losing, like, you know, running a lifestyle business is, is really about allowing you to maintain your current lifestyle. Like you don't have to move anywhere to do it. You don't have to be consumed by it. You run that business to the potential of what you have time for. So if you're raising kids or you want to have your little hobby farm on the side or a real farm on the side, like you modify your business to suit your life as opposed to modifying your life to suit your business.
0: Um, that's it. That's a good bumper sticker right there. <laughs> uh, so... Um, after the break, we're going to go way deeper into how lifestyle business, community forest, how it all comes together. But before we get there, can you tell me a little bit about um, how about right now where you are with your business um, and the kind of near barriers that you're seeing to actually being able to have a sustainable lifestyle style business on Cortez? Um so, so where you are right now with your business, and and the the barriers that that you um, and many others have in just getting to a lifestyle business here. Oh boy! <laughs> but you can only do that in five minutes, so okay. this is a small answer because so we're going to have my business
2: is at now. And when Ashley and I moved here, I had one chainsaw and a toolbox, like a little flip open barn style toolbox, like in a socket set, like we did not have a lot of gear. You know, we did go back home. We did do a big load and, and get it out here. And I built, yes, literally built an arsenal of chainsaws out of parts and things. And and I built everything, like we totally bootstrapped the business up until this point, like cash up front, save up the cash, buy the thing, use the thing, make it make as much money as you put into it. As soon as you get to that point, either like, you know, just keep going, but just build that tool sets because once again, like we have no debt, we have no kids. Like we, you know, you've got that, that nothing to lose sort of feeling. So just keep pumping back into it. And, and we've, we've built this business. Like we bought a little skitter like three years ago and, and the people we're working for it at the time were like, yeah, buy the skitter. We'll give you enough work to pay it off. Great. Awesome. Thank you so much. And we built all these little tools and these implements and building a business on Cortez, like you have to be multiple multilateral. Like you have to have multiple revenue streams. You can't really just hang on to one thing. There are certain things on this. I'm not saying it's impossible, but that's why I do the mechanic thing. Like there's a, there's a point there where also like, I'm just, I just like to, to change my patterns up a little bit. And so, we go. I go into the mechanic shop and I sit in there for six or eight weeks and then I freak out and need to go play with chainsaws for a little while and smell the sawdust and, and be out in the elements and, and get a good workout. And, and uh, my partner Ashley, like we run sort of side by side and there's a lot of alignment, but she's a landscaper and so... Together, like you know, like our trucks. Are, you know, like I can haul her soil amendments for her with my big heavy truck that I also do the the you know, I also do the firewood with, and you know, like we can we we use our tools so that they 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 complement both angles of the business. And Ashley's revenue is like a steady revenue, like it's always in she's regular. She's got the hours all the time, and and that allows me to be the 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 wild card in the scenario, and be like I'm putting all. All the pennies down on this and ashley's like okay well i got food and rent covered so you better do it and halfway through i'm like you know ashley <laughs> i don't have money you know but also it's like i'm investing my time so i'm not creating revenue you know and so we support each other through that so that is a huge aspect to this business because like i'm so recklessly optimistic you know so i don't see the barriers that you're talking about i don't see them till i hit them head on at 90 miles an hour and I'm like, okay, but at that point, I'm so invested that I have to do anything to get over them, you know? So there's another, like, you know, building a business on Cortez is like, you can't just sit there and look at all your obstacles. You can't at all. You almost have to not even observe them because if you just go for your goal, sometimes your obstacles just move. Sometimes your obstacles you realize are not even existent in the first place. They're just something you perceived that may be an obstacle, but they're in the back of your mind like they could stop you. So someone who needs to control their environment would need that gone or dealt with or, or solved before they decided to move forward or invest further in their business. And and sometimes you get there and you realize it, it wasn't even there in the first place. I,
0: I, I love that. <laughs> that your kind of definition of the obstacles or your how to overcome them on Cortez is just to be, <laughs> kind of ignore them, which I think is actually a bit true. And uh, you also touch on some of the things that um, I see end up being challenges for so many, right? That you, like in your case, you've been able to raise the pennies that you needed in order to get to the next level and to diversify enough and to have one partner have a more steady income so that these things are possible. Um, Because uh, it's very clear that getting small loans or kind of investments to get to the next level are hard to come by here so um you've managed a smart kind of way around that as well as to be just like super like let's just try, um, which seems like it's paying off for you. Uh, <laughs> um, um, so we, I'm gonna, we're gonna do a short break. where We're gonna listen to some more music by the Awakeners. Talk about uh, entrepreneurial spirit and making the best <laughs> of the obstacles that come before you. We are lucky to have local musicians doing that for us. And then when we come back, we are going to hear. Uh, a lot more about the community forest about some of the projects happening in it and about some of the value added opportunities uh, and lifestyle business opportunities that could come out of it so uh, you get a chance neighbor to ask questions Uh, you can do that during the break by calling in this is this is me talking and turning off the ringer, um, so it doesn't start ringing right now. So you get to call in during the break and ask your questions about the community forest, about how do you get enough firewood, how do you legally get firewood, how do you better take care of your own land? How hey, you want Nick to come <laughs> and talk to you about what would what would it look like to have a civil culture uh, eye on your Your land. Um, Call in with your questions. If we can't answer them, then between Nick and I, I feel like we will know someone who can. You may call in to CKTZ 89.5 FM, Cortez Community Radio, at 250-935-0200. You can also try to email at U, the letter U, at folk, F-O-L-K, letter U again, You at folku.ca. You are listening to Amanda O'Fox Gillespie, and this is our Folk University's Folk U 101 radio show. Thank you so much for joining us here today, and I hope you'll take the chance to call in and join the conversation and steer it with your questions. And let's listen to Wise Woman by the Awakeners.
3: And said, "Here's my advice to you, my grandson: learn to hold the door wide open, let everyone walk on through before you. Learn to slow down when you're talking, watch the world spinning around. Learn to slow down when you're walking, look around and watch the world go round. There's so much wisdom gets left on the ground, so many wise words laying around, frowned upon by the young. Each generation knows." The one to set it all straight and show how it's done to run this crazy show. But the young need the old and the old need the young and we all can learn if we're humble enough not to think we know all the answers. Learn to hold the door wide open Let everyone walk on through before you Learn to slow down when you're talking Watch the world spinning around Learn to slow down when you're walking Look around and watch the world go round With respect and empathy Wisdom and energy can be friends Not enemies When we swallow our pride And follow the tide and not pretend Gracias.
4: Of love, everything's alright. If it's rough or I'm feeling down, and stormy weather is all around, I will keep steady. I am true past. Shine that light. I know this too shall pass. And hold fast. Hang tight. In the grace of love. Thank you. Taking destiny I cannot
0: Welcome back, neighbor. You are listening to CKTZ 89.5 FM, Cortez Community Radio, on the web at CortezRadio.ca. This is Folk University's Folk U Radio 101 show. We right now have Nick Gagnon, which I'm butchering, but we've all decided that that's okay, uh, name on. We're learning a little bit more about the Cortez community forest lands. We learned at the first part of the show a little bit more about the partnership that oversees those lands. And now we have Nick on to talk a little bit about what it means to create businesses from the community forest partnership. Uh, So welcome back um and i there was a little bit of music problem during that break so i apologize uh i was lucky to have nick here who's also quite mechanical uh who helped solve the problem which involved not breathing on it uh, <laughs> so thank you uh and sorry about that um So, Nick, we left off uh, with you talking a little bit more about your business and what a lifestyle business is. And to put it into my words, I would say it is a business at the scale where it is you where the, the business is serving you so that you can live and have a very fulsome life versus you spending your whole life in service to the business and and. Now what I want to know is, looking around at this amazing community forest lands that we have, what are some of the lifestyle businesses that you could see being supported by the the community forest, and such a way that the community forest would stay healthy and vibrant? And uh, what are some of the uh, what we call, or I've heard people refer to as value-added products that might come out of that forest? So. Um, Yeah,
2: I want to double down on the meaning of value-added. Like value-added itself is, yeah, you're taking a $100 log and you're going to turn it into a $1,000 log or a $2,000 log. That's up to you, marketing, finishing, however you get that out there. Second thing I want to look at at value-added is that our wood in the Cortez Forest comes with a whole myriad of ethics applied to how we got that out there. And to me, ethics of value. And so there we're adding another layer of value on top of the value-added products. I think that's worth a premium. I'm pushing to just, like, aside from all of the other labels in the world that seem to signify ethics, like the more expensive paper you can buy, the more expensive wood products you can buy already. They have these these sort of giant, for lack of a better term, greenwash labels on them. They're like these giant, top-heavy organizations that have been around for decades. And... I think without all that, I think like people are willing to pay to see forestry done. Right. And I, and so there. not only are you making, you know, a set of chopsticks, you're making a set of chopsticks that are sustainably harvested. When you go buy chops sushi in Vancouver, you're buying chopsticks that are made out of bamboo shipped over from China and we're burning slash piles. Like to me, there's just, there's just a, a serious lack of, 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 you know, fruition there on, on what we could or could not be doing and. So local value added, we got the lumber guys, we got the, the sawmill guys, they are all just working very hard. This is extremely hard work. Uh, it's a turnover, you know, once again you are taking a hundred dollar log and turning it into whatever value you can turn it into with boards and then there's further refinement from there. I mean those guys are planing and tongue and grooving or making, you know, beautiful square timbers with details and those kinds of things and 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 they're really going after you they're they're barely filling the local market. I mean, we see the quadra builders trucks come over with the loads of lumber so like where's the disconnect well we don't have kiln dried lumber or or our lumber doesn't have a certain stamp of approval on it so it can't be used in some engineered building situation or what have you but for me when i look at the value added wood product market and the potential of it i think smaller like smaller products like you know like a tiny little piece of wood that's just nice and refined has a lot of value per volume So here you could take one log and make a thousand little things, or you can take one log and make 20 bigger things or what have you. But each one of those like refinements, I think, even though it goes into the, the big world out there and gets put next to other value added wood products, maybe. And let's say in, in some, in some of the markets out there, right? Like in some store or whatever, I think that Cortez wood has a story behind it and, and a really unique story in a story that carries a lot of ethics and and a lot of beauty. And and I think that that has a premium. And so what I see for all these entrepreneurs, I mean, we've got people on the island making cutting boards, the amount of people who refine pieces of wood into beautiful things on this island. is like, there's so many of them. There's so many little wood shops and wood lathes, and there's so many of these people. And yet I feel like for them, like it's just not connecting. Like it's all the pieces seem to be in place to me. It's just that there's like these little disconnects. Like we've never had consistent fiber access. We do one logging show in October or in the spring and everybody buys whatever they can. Every mill buys whatever they can. And then we would export whatever it is we couldn't sell locally. And And that's it. So if you're an entrepreneur and you want your year's supply of fiber, you got to come up with that money up front. Now you got to come up with that money up front, which you don't have. So you've got to borrow that money and you can't guarantee anything because you don't have a market because you didn't have the fiber in the first place and, and it's the carriage in front of the horse again. And so for me, I, I feel like creating a regular consistent fiber access market on this Island, like, like a lumber shop and, and, and organizing that fiber right on the side of the road like taking all these little things it's right down to the stick for me um we've got people wanting to do biochar we've got people wanting to build um soil piles that require nitrogens and chip and aeration and all of these other things and so how can we get all of these guys lined up in a row so that we can self-monetize what we're getting what we're hoping to get funding for for the fire mitigation Like we need that funding because we need it to like get up and off the ground. Like it would be really awesome to get that ball rolling, but we're not going to rely on government handouts for our industry for the rest of our existence. That's not logical. So how do we self monetize it? Well, we need to get everybody going on board and buying all the things aren't just a big, giant, beautiful 30 inch fur log. Like we need people who want to take bark mulch and mulch it and, and make, bark mulch piles. What is the value of that? Is there a business plan there? Well, no one's been willing to try, but when there's a pile of bark sitting next to the road and you can go to town and rent a mulcher for three weeks and get your mulch pile going and see if you can test the market, that's that's pretty low risk. Market entry. And, and that, and a plethora. And so if we can self monetize that fire mitigation and we can self monetize the thinning we're self monetizing our forest stewardship. And like I mentioned earlier, like the crash of 2008, that we were, we were relying on a government handout based on the stumpage fee to perform this forest stewardship to perform this silviculture. It went away. The whole, the whole thing died. The whole thing died. And so don't want to be responsible. I want to be, we, we need to be in control of our market and we need to be in control of our stewardship. And so we need to create those revenue streams coming in and they're quite minimal. Like a lot of it for me, my value added is firewood. I'm, I'm going to create enough firewood to be able to probably continue to roll, but there's going to be a whole bunch of other stuff that's available. Um, it's, I was
0: going to say, so can you break down, sorry, okay, I really like this idea. I like the idea that you could go in and be like, okay, we're going to take this, however many, we're going to take 100 acres and we're going to fire mitigate it um, and, uh, and capture mortality. That's what you called it earlier. We're going to capture mortality. We're going to fire mitigate it. We're going to capture mortality. And then at the end, we're going to have these different questions. Uh, quality fibers i never thought about um kind of wood as as or a forest as equaling fibers so what are can you walk us through that those those series of piles that i guess come from sawdust all the way up to like the beautiful perfect fur log i'm not sure what's actually at the at the far end but i want you to walk me down through what each of those piles is
2: so sawdust and chip can be compressed into those little press bricks. You see them at the local stores. You can buy them. You stick them in your stove. They're like clean burning. They burn for a long time. That's just that's just chips. That's just that's just wood garbage like to most industry.
0: I I I want those. I want someone to build those locally.
2: Yeah. Me too. <laughs> so there there's an avenue for me to be able to sell some chips and and the next piles, a, a big pile of bark, bark mulch and sawdust and, and little branches and all that stuff that can be run through a mulcher and used as an additive in building soil. Um, the next, we, we take like all those little tops. So where we stop cutting diameter for firewood, let's say no more firewood after three and a half inches. So we take that whole rest of that little pole and my you know little machine, it's all delimbed. And so it's like this little pile of like 15 foot long poles starting at three inches and ending at zero, wherever they out, So we take those and we add them with some branches and we add them with some other biomass stuff and, and we make biochar, which is also another like, you know, soil additive. And then in the process, we have all of these, like the nice thing with that small forest that you're thinning, it's a young forest. And is you end up with this sort of uniformity in the, in the tree size, but it's small, but it's uniform. So within that, we'll probably have a good amount of cedar poles. And so what's the cedar pole market on how many cedar poles can we sell on the island, what else can we process them into? I mean, if you've got like 250 of the same size pieces of cedar, suddenly your production, you know, you don't need to get a four foot cedar log and turn it into this smaller and smaller and smaller pieces cedar. Like now you're just running these little, so your requirement, your investment requirement for some, the tooling to process that is significantly reduced. So, and uh, and the and the last thing in the pile to me is firewood or or the greens like all the little green branches those are nitrogen rich so we can process those into a form of of nitrogen so we can nitrogen feed um, whoever's uh, willing to do the soil piling.
0: Okay, so in most forests, would there not be uh, a grade higher than firewood? Um, like, or is are most of our forests here, like the highest grade, basically firewood? I just, I don't know. Here meaning you're, like on Cortez? Yeah, yeah. Like how much of the sort of, you know, I feel like we still sort of, or I still think when I think, you know, logging and wood, I'm like, oh, you know, the fancy lumber that you're going to make a house out of. But is that not such a big industry potential in Cortez as maybe in my mind I'm imagining
2: I'm looking at industry, like the potential for, for, for lumber for building on this island is, is definitely there, but our, our, our millers are once again, like they're always chicken and the egg. Like they've, they've got to put up so much lumber. I mean, you could, you've gone to home Depot. I mean, you walk through this warehouse and you're like, Oh, that looks nice. Yeah. I'll take some of that, you know? And then while well, you go to one of our local millers and yes, some of them do have like a good supply of stock, but if you want to build a house, like that's a big order. For, for them so then they've got to fire up and get to it and and like the turnaround time and then rough and then planing it and then also there's there's some gift to like to like each individual piece has to be graded for quality you know what I mean kind of like a giant knot in the middle of a two by four that's supporting a floor like it's got to be graded and all of those processes all add up together to it making it in a way for me like the that sort of house building lumber, industry, a lot of local lumber is used building houses on Cortez. So those, if you talk to the local millers, I mean, they're going as fast as they can, but I just don't even see like entry market for like another Miller on the Island, which, you know, because everyone who is milling right now, they're trying to add more value. They're trying to plane and get tongue and groove and get kiln dried. So they're all building, like they're all getting to those places, but it takes time and it takes local investment. Like the more sales they got, the, the faster they're going to move forward you know, like a pre-order for a whole bunch of tongue and groove would, would set one of those guys off, right? Like or it would would kick off their, their intentions.
0: Okay, perfect. So this, you, you let drops a couple hints about the next thing that I really want to talk about, which is, I think, I I think people refer to it now as Nick's little blue machine. Um, this is a finished machine. It's, uh, I, I've heard enough about it now that I feel like, even though I know nothing about logging, that I'm even like, oh, this is so exciting! This is really cool. So, we tell us a little bit uh, more about this particular machine. Um, it comes from Finland. I think this might also be a wonderful opportunity to talk about the way that the Finnish people think about um, caring for their forests and um, and why this little machine then is such a game changer.
2: I'll start out with the Finnish people like they've been doing forestry pretty amazingly for the last 600 years or more like they just have it dialed then again there are there's a lot of family woodlots so you've got three or four families all own like one large woodlot and so within that they've got their own little board of directors and they manage their projects accordingly their forestry equipment though is is like second to none like you look at it and there's like our big north american producers and then it's like finland over there and there's some pretty good german stuff i'm not gonna get into the specifics and this little blue machine is so like when the when the forester ione brown was here she just went oh you don't see one of those in a bc forest like it's so cute like look how small it is you know it still weighs 11,000 kgs like it's not a tiny machine but it's tiny by comparison of bc forestry equipment standards right like you take a 30 ton excavator and you turn those tracks sideways like there's four wheelbarrows of dirt at the back corner of those tracks like that it's huge but everyone's thinking bc trees they're the size of pickup trucks like it's it's a huge amount of volume to move and so I took a Hail Mary on this little machine. It was uh, something my family owned back in Ontario. And we were going to sell it. We were going to, like, fix it up and sell it. It was just one of the, like, we parked it when 2008 happened because it's just, like, it was meant for doing silviculture. Why would we do high production logging with it? It had very low hours, but it needed, like, 20000 bucks in a month of work. And we just never got around to it. And also it was totally incapacitated. The computer system was down, a bunch of wires were melted, and it was just like sitting in the back of the sawmill lot in Ontario. And I flew to Ontario in November. Last November, I get there, it's like, you know, of course, minus 27 for like a week. And I just had a tarp and a propane heater and a very limited amount of tools. And my brother lent me a pickup while I was there. And of course I just like, you know, mom, make me food. I just went from two in the morning till, you know, till two in the morning, I would sleep for like as little four or five hours, get up and just go right back under my tarp. I, I got it operational enough for it to be put on a truck. Came home. I lined up a transport truck. Uh, My brothers put it on the truck. I met it in Vancouver. It still had a whole bunch of problems. Like one of the wheels would only go like two feet and then stop. And then it would go another two feet and then stop. So the guys at the barge were like laughing that I'm like limping this thing across. Like what seemed like a mile long parking lot. Like trying to get it on the barge. And then to get it off the barge in Campbell River. Get it on another barge. Have it barged over to Cortez Bay. And then Matt picked me up down at Cortez Bay with his dump truck and trailer and ran me up to my shop. Total disassembly. It arrived here, July 16th total disassembly and get all those things into the shop. So the cylinders needed to be rebuilt. The, the parts needed to be removed so that they could be like measured and, and new ones could be ordered. So there was a lot of disassembly that needed to happen prior to like being able to even order the parts up. And, and we, we, disassembled it we began reassembly like near the end of august like i think it was like september 1st and our deadline to get to the community forest was like the second week of october prospectively. so we were like holy hot tamales like let's go i replaced every wire in that machine and i've got pictures of it like it's just like burnt like piles handfuls of burnt spaghetti like redid every wire in the machine like fabrication building things pins cylinders painting um the whole thing's run by com- computerized so every hydraulic function on the machine runs off of a magnet a magnetic tube that is that is so you feed certain millivolts to a magnet the magnet pulls up on the spool the spool lets certain amount of oil through and that's how the machine operates so this is advanced robotics from 2004 so I'm, I'm, like, talking to MIT students online on the, like, Parker Knowledge Base trying to figure this stuff out. And they're like, what are you working on? This sounds ridiculous, this project. And I it's in the pictures. And I'm like, wow, they, they make these on mobile machines? Because this is the kind of stuff you use to run sawmills and mills and plants and things, right? So lo and behold, like, get through the mechanical aspect of it by the hair, by the skin of my teeth, like, get it on the trailer, get it over the community forest block. And I've run these things before. And there's very rarely like a day and a half where you get away without fixing something like there, the the maintenance aspect on it. I can equate it to like two hours a day by the time I get there and I fuel up and I grease just the general maintenance and then tidy that up, tighten this thing up, fix that thing, fix this thing. Like there's always something with these things and by the grace By the graces of all the things in the world, I have no idea in the order of the universe. I got this whole community forest job done without like any kind of major breakdown with a machine that's been sitting that long. Like that was a stroke of luck and, and, and a little bit of like, be gentle (laughs) and think about it. So it was a huge astronomical task. Like I, I, I called my brother. He's been an equipment guy his entire life and he knows all, all the equipment guys. Like, I mean, that's what they do. And he just went like, Nick, I don't, I don't know. Very many people who could have done that. Like who could have pulled that off? And When I called him up and I was like, I made it two weeks. I didn't even break a hose. like an implo hose. I didn't break anything off. I didn't have to weld anything. And he was just like, what? <laughs> like, really? So, I mean, it was a success. There was a lot of, you know, my. Mechanical abilities in there, but also there was a big streak of luck.
0: So now I've, I've seen a video of how this thing works, but, and I understand that it's a lot smaller than what is usually being brought into uh, a forest. So, but it does kind of everything. It's sort of a one, like. and why does it matter? Why does it matter that it's smaller? Why is that good? And, um, and how is this then operating?
2: So the fact that it's so small, like it's only eight feet wide and the wheels are like 18 like 18 feet up the wheel base is like eight by 18 and it articulates in the middle and each wheels on its own hydraulic motor so they're each wheel is individually driven which means when i turn a really really sharp corner like the outside tires are going the appropriate speed to make up for the difference and so i don't tear the earth up as i turn around but it also is like very nimble in the forest and the crane sits on a pedestal on the front, and it's it, and it can be brought straight up and down. So I can stick my little nose in a hole and, and have a big, great big fir tree on the left and a great big fir tree like inches from my tires and reach in a hole and just, and just pull out a couple of those sick little hemlock and that, dying, that dead standing fir and that windfall, and I can just kind of get them out of the hole. And then I can back up and get out of the hole and pull those out into a big clear spot so that that extraction equipment, the skitter... Or what have you, whatever you're going to use to pull that out to the road from that point, doesn't need to go where I go. And by reducing where that extraction equipment needs to go, when I move the log, I'm airlifting it. I'm holding it off the ground and I'm moving it from point A to point B. When, once it's on the skidder, then it's being dragged. So to reduce like our tertiary impact, like I go up in these little holes and I make it so that that skidder never really needs to go in there. And then the harvesting head itself, it it can grab a standing tree up to about, it doesn't really like anything over 25 inches so it's just kind of like a small unit and and it and it takes the tree off the stump it, it fells it directionally, like it pushes it in the direction it needs to go and then it sucks it through and it measures it and takes the limbs off at the same time so I know how long the piece that's coming out is and it also equates the diameter of the tree so I have a good idea what the volume of that log is as well as I'm processing it out and I can be like, okay, well, nobody wants anything for this type of saw log under seven inches. Beep, I hit that seven inch mark, boop, bucket off right there. And then it strips the branches off. So if you felled that tree, like a, like a hand faller over the chainsaw, felled that tree, and the tree's 100 feet long. then there's a, and, it, and he delimbs that tree. There's, there's, uh, there's limbs for 100 feet down on the forest floor. I bring the tree to me, and all the limbs get smashed off right in front of my machine. So now I'm bringing the limb mass... Over to the skid trail, like what we were just talking about with the tertiary impact. So I'm going to make this mat of branches and little tops and everything along that skid trail. So when that skidder goes through and I go through and we're driving around with the equipment, we're on this bed of branches and we're trying to reduce our impact on that tertiary layer. Because we're now just becoming aware of, of how many different types of of um, psyllium are, are required in the general health of our forest. And we call this like subterranean or terrestrial uh, um, silium, <laughs> terrestrial silium. So they grow under the mosses, and they really can affect like how much root rot an area gets. So they can affect the general health. And a lot of them like extract nitrogen from the soil and trade that for photosynthesis with trees, and that's a symbiotic relationship. And so by cutting all these guys, all these silium off from each other, it takes some ages to grow back. The moss has to come back, and then they've got to come back, but. By reducing that impact, that regeneration happens a lot faster. And I find that's ever so more important when you're doing a reduced extraction because you're not just clear-cutting it, planting new trees, start from scratch, get them free to grow, and then it's it's a clear-cut forest that's regrowing. We're leaving these big trees behind, so we don't want to mess up the good thing they got going on. So that's why we need to be as gentle as possible. The more trees we leave behind, the more gentle we need to be. Oh, I just...
0: I, I... This is one of the things that I really appreciate about you and that it feels so special on Cortez is that you can have all the knowledge of a logger and all the knowledge of a tree hugger uh, in one
2: person. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I hug everyone before I cut it. I just,
0: I really appreciate that, um, that, you know, about you, about Mark, about so many of you who are helping us figure this out. Uh, so uh, thank you. And okay, so I'm pretty excited about um, this machine. I guess a little bit, I also feel a bit of of sadness because I know that a machine like that um, is really cost prohibitive and not something that most communities probably could access. And um, And this leads to my next question because even here, we really struggle, uh, small businesses, communities with, you know, uh, initiatives with great ideas. We always struggle with a sort of like, how do we fund this? Um, how do we get to the next level? And I uh, I know that you have worked with uh, CETA, the Cortez Community Economic Development Associ- Association. And they have this new pilot project that you can learn all about by listening to the Folk you podcast about it with the same name, um, which the the pilot is called the Community Investment Co-op, and what it is is a way to get local dollars invested into local businesses. And I believe that you helped pilot this uh, with getting this machine up and running. Can you talk a little bit about that pilot and what it allowed you to do?
2: So prior to the machine even getting here. Um we went, I went to the, uh, Rural Island Economic Forum, um, and I was there with, uh, Lonnie and, uh, Adam McKenty and I had gone off about value add and how we need to like, you know, combine our organizations because the community forest can provide this endless fiber resource, which is what an entrepreneur needs to see. They need consistent supply. It's like first rule. Don't even start the business plan unless you've got this consistent sort of supply. And we're, we're going on and on. And I was like, wouldn't it be great? Like if we can get the consistent supply, but then as soon as the ready to pull the trigger, I mean, who understands a Cortez entrepreneur better than Cortez people. And I'm talking like these huge investment brokers there at the rural Island economic forum. And they're like, you're from Cortez. Like you guys have people there that could do this. Like you, you have the community there. Like you don't need to really outsource. I think you guys can do it. You know, just an over the
0: top. do it means get come up with money. They're find like, the you money, don't need us. Vet you the have money. The...
2: Vet the entrepreneur, vet the business plan, and then create like a, a, a. The biggest issue is like a divisional barrier. I think really, it's like you know, like I could go find someone or do a tree job for someone with a, quite a bit of money, and you know, maybe ask them if they wanted to loan me ten grand. But if I screwed up, then that's really weird at the post office or at the co-op cafe. It's like, eh, you know, so I feel like. um like that was like a, a big thing. So I think that makes it so that you, you, you don't know potentially who invested in you and, and, but they know who they're investing in, which is really cool. And also like a governing body, like CETA really was like, okay, what's your business plan, where's your guaranteed job, if you, this does all happen. And so we piloted the program with me. I used it like a bridge loan and, uh, there was a large bearing for my machine and it came to the tune of $6,800 and my cylinders that needed to be rebuilt were like $4,000. So between those two things that was the biggest like I don't have enough time to make enough money to get all that stuff like it needs to be ordered tomorrow. And I'm not going to order a $7,000 thing if unless I got the cash in my hand and I just don't have the cash. So it was it was essentially sort of like a bridge bridge loan but it was exceptionally helpful in getting this machine up and running and, and on the go. And so I made my first payment back on that loan November 1st, but I wanna just get this thing crushed out. We're gonna get it knocked off real soon and have that money available again, m- moving forward. So I think that was a super cool just to pilot the program. And then I think this little blue machine, like with you know the positive impact that it's had on the forest stewardship and the public presence that it's had, You know, people going, wow, that's really cool. And everything looks great. Like I think it just had good public rapport.
0: So, we've kind of uh, been going around and around. Um, well, first, I would just want to stop actually and say I, I, I just love the idea of the community investment co op so much. And I think it, you know, on one hand, it's sort of newfangled and new, but on the other hand, it is the role that a community bank once played in a community, is where we knew and trusted each other and we made sure that money was available to the people who needed it so that our community could grow in the exchange of goods and services and things that we needed. And because we do not anymore have a community bank and many, many communities who who do have banks, don't even have community banks really anymore. But we neither have a bank nor a community bank. So um, I feel pretty excited that, that the sort of we imagined it and we're making it happen aspect of that. Um, and I couldn't imagine a better pilot than, than you. So the thing that we have been kind of skirting around is this recent cut block. Um, and when I and we've, you know, I've just we've been hearing little stories about the cut block. Okay, so you modeled the blue machine and the cut bo- cut block, and we know that the neighbors, instead of you know cursing you and and firebombing your house at night, are thanking you and saying, "Wow, you guys have done a good job." So, can you uh, talk to me about um, about this cut block and what you did in it? What I should be calling it instead of cut block, and um, and and how it would performed and it would look so much different than a typical cut block that was not being managed by a community forest.
2: Well, you can call it a operating area or a management area, a forest management area. Um, cause that's mostly what we did in there. We mostly did civil culture and thinning. We removed a thousand cubic meters or 750 cubic meters, maybe prospectively, we haven't really measured up the piles yet, but, um, traditionally there would be a lot more slash on the ground. Like even if we did, let's say, let's say traditional practice did, uh, a 60% retention site, like we did here. Um, so the same prescription.
0: Okay, in the pre- the prescription, I know from our, <laughs> I think from um, our previous uh, show on wildfire, is the sort of like this is this is the recipe for a healthy uh, looking forest. Is that right? So the prescription is sort of like we've had the kind of health experts look at the forest and what could be. Um, Taken from that in a healthy way is that is that more or less? Yeah, there's okay.
2: there's hundreds of different prescriptions, and it's really like the intent of the operations manager and what what we need to do here. um So, the the prescription itself in that Carrington operating area, like if you applied that prescription to traditional falling practices, there would be a lot more slash and debris on the ground, like all over, which. Doesn't look the worst when it's done, but like about a year later, like there's all that orange. You need to see that green trampoline, and then it takes a while to break down. And so by like doing like what we did and bringing the branches out to the trails and then running them over, breaks that stuff up, breaks it down, makes it bioavailable faster. Um, and what was the other part of your question?
0: Yeah. I mean, it it was about sort of this project. So uh, within this forest management area in Carrington that you just did, like what the kind of prescription was for that area and um, and how you like and how this was a model for how you might move forward.
2: So this one was leaving 60 percent behind. It's, it's like pretty intense. It's still like a whole forest in there and you end up with these little holes because there was natural holes in it. Like you would just walk in there was like this field with like three dying hemlocks sitting in the middle of it. And you're like, what do we do with this? You know? So as you walk through it, if you do go for a walk in there, like there is these little holes, but just know that like those holes were there. They, they just needed to be opened up and given light and, and let nature do its thing in there. But even within that, like when you go in there. Moving forward on those blocks, uh, on these prescriptions, like there's so many different applications. Like each spot is so different. Like I, w- I was doing just the silviculture aspect of this and I'm on one side and I'm going away. I'm like, Oh, I got the hang of this, right? Like you're starting to see the trees that you need to cut and you're trying to start to see your, and then I cross the road. I'm like, Oh yeah, I'm not in Ontario anymore. This is not monoculture. Like you cross the road, completely different biodiversity, completely different things going on on the ground. Uh, more root rot in the fir. the hemlock are healthier over here, the cedar are doing better over here. Oh, 100 meters later, everything's changed again. So it's the biodiversity of BC and how fast it changes even within like very small little microcosms. Like it changes really fast. So the next block we do, we might have like a little clear cut in there and like open up like a little pocket where we know if we did this 60-40 prescription, it, it might not fare so well there. And so Mark looks at those things and he's just very diligent deal- like, we're always open and willing to try different things so that we can observe it over the next 40 years and see how it affected the trees we left behind. So as much as this is science and as much as these projects are well thought out, each one of them is still an experiment because th- these little microcosms everywhere, right? So we just opt to stay entirely out of places, even though that has nothing to do with the government prescription. We just looked in there and we're like, it's wet and it's... There's the trees that are doing fine and everything's fine in there. But if we go in there, it's going to be muddy. We're going to make a big mess. Let's just not go in there. Let's just net that down. Let's just forget about it. And I went to go up to that line and I got like a hundred feet from it. I'm like, I'm making a mess. I'm going to get out of here. And Mark was like, yeah, good call. So, so there's all the prescription. There's all the lines. There's all the science and everything, but then it's up to the in the individual when they get there and you hit that block and you go, yeah, this ain't going to work. And that ability to adapt. Is what makes like our homegrown Cortez team first all Cortez logging crew on Cortez, I don't know, even maybe 20 years or 25 years, but first all Cortez logging crew with Laurier and Floyd and I, and, and we walked in and, and just having that ability to instantly want to adapt to that, like change that you've met up with, I think is, is something that you're only going to get from like real homegrown contractors.
0: I just love that. Um, so, can we talk a little bit more about um, about this thing that you keep bringing up about managing the uh, the f- the forest floor and the uh, micro rhizome and the and all these sort of uh, symbiotic communities underneath it um, that exist? So, I i. You know, I I hear a lot that we need to make sure that we're leaving some of the um, wood behind. But but then I also have, you know, as I've mentioned multiple times, a horror of of wildfires. (laughs) And so uh, how do you manage, like, how are you seeing the way that we can manage making sure that we're really taking care of our, of building up our soil, making sure that we are um, creating soil that hopefully diminishes things like uh, root rot and, um, and, and creates this sort of nice, moist, um, beautiful, fecund forest floor and uh, is getting out stuff that might attract forest fire, et cetera.
2: Once again, it's totally sliding scale and you totally hit it in the operating areas. Like you're hitting these trees that have like four branches on them. And they're like dizzy and they're dying. Like if it's got four branches, it's not going to live very much longer. You can see that's going to capture the mortality on that. But all I've made was four branches. And once again, I'll go like 200 feet and just hit this field of 10 foot tall hemlock that are totally bonsai. Like they go up and they're just like, they look like a bonsai tree. Like their top is totally flat and they've been growing outward for like, you know, eight, 10 feet, they get these funny little canopies. And so the entire ground is shaded. And you know that like 90% of these hemlock aren't going to come to fruition. And in those scenarios, I end up with like this huge pile of branches for the area. So leaving that grow is going to create a fire hazard. Cutting it down is going to create a fire hazard, but only for one year. After that, it's all going to break down. And I'm going to leave the healthiest of the species in there. And those healthiest ones of the species, we're going to try and get them to fight and get up there and, and to close the canopy at a higher point. To allow, and, and then once that canopy's closed, like up at that higher point, we've gotten rid of the ladder fuels and, and all those little friends it had that we cut, you know, provided nitrogen for the soil. So in those areas where there's too much of that, too much to just run over and turn it into pulp or whatever, that's why we need to focus on that with the thinning and bring it out and either chip it or mulch it or, or try and add value with it to something. So that's really, like I said, like it changes so fast here. the the environment like you just drop off a north slope and you're like well yeah here we are in wonderland again totally different scenario
0: (laughs) i often feel like i'm in wonderland when i walk through the trees here Uh, (laughs) um so i okay i i can't not ask this question um and i know that everyone has a different probably answer but can do we have enough uh forest land to 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 keep the forest healthy and have everyone on Cortez who wants to burn wood, burn wood. And if we do, what do we need to get to the place where we can actually get firewood (laughs) for a year?
2: We have enough firewood. There's been a lot of blocks Uh, you know, like it used to be sort of freelance, like everyone would just go out, there was no gates, like there was tons of big fur blowdowns everywhere. Like the firewooders of 20 years ago, I mean, they had access, like they had access, like, you know, the big logging corporations would come over here and do a cut block and then just sell everyone the firewood and leave, like, you know. that, and, and when the community forest took over and the management took over, like, it was hard to create that within it. There was a liability with letting people just go in there and cut with chainsaws. Like, there was so many give-and-take layers and people were being protective over their own piles. And, like, it's just, like, how do we make this so it's just consistent? So, starting with phase one with little blue machine going in there, you know, and Floyd going in as a faller, he's like, you know, I would have smashed, I don't know how much of that wood to smithereens. He has to put it on the ground for his own safety. So when he puts that nice big cedar tree down, that little spring pole over there doesn't snap in half and come flying at him. Or, you know, and even if he would have put it down on the ground first and laid that big cedar on it, would have broken too, you know? And like I said earlier, like for him to go out there and limit and turn it into a piece of firewood, like it it would just wouldn't be worth the effort. So me having gone in first and taken all that and made it into one little neat pile off to the side, so he just didn't even have to worry about it also made it a lot more efficient for like you know the extraction equipment the skitter guy to just grab that and pull it out so our percentage of firewood compared to our commercial timber and the scale of our project the hectareage that we went through in our project is more firewood per hectare than we've ever seen before from a Cortez community forest and so we're just sort of balancing that volume right now it's not even all equated for yet we don't know how much you know but we know it's more than before and now we're looking at okay so if this was this size hector cut and this was this much firewood then now we're starting to be able to get those numbers right and and how much more can we do and then how fast can we produce because as much as there's nothing wrong with chainsaw axe firewood like, we got to level up production here. Like, there's a guy driving here from Courtney to bring loads of firewood. And I've been dying to get everyone their firewood. I just can't keep up. Like, by the time I get to the bottom of my list, the top of my list is calling again. And around and around it goes. And it's like the never-ending. My list is growing constantly. And I can't go fast enough. So, So how do we go fast enough? So Little Blue Machine also processes firewood pretty fast. I can now fill my truck in a half an hour, which traditionally, with myself and Floyd, who's no slouch at firewood... You know, it would take us like three or four hours to fill both of our trucks. My truck with, you know, close to two cords and his truck with a cord. So that's three cords. Two and a half, three hours was like superhero day. And you get out and you're done and you unload that load and you're just a bag of dirt. Like there's just nothing left in you. There's the hardest workout on the planet. And one little slip. Like, oh, I hurt my wrist or my ankle or my back is sore. Like, sorry, you're not getting fired with my back hurts. We can't have that. You know what I mean? I can't rely on my body to keep the whole, to keep people warm. That's not, that's not logical because if I tell you, I can't bring you firewood, I'm telling you, you know, well then go ahead and freeze that just ethically. That just sucks. So I, I just wanted to be in a position where I could at least fulfill the client list I have that I've built and half of it's like friends and, and family and, and those people. So. So we're looking at taking this, 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 now this surplus firewood that we've put roadside, processing it up, firing it out there and finding our margins on that, where we can improve. But with this production, like right now, the market's at a certain place because of scarcity. And so by taking the scarcity out of the situation, we need to wait to let the market level out. And firewood's one of the fastest changing markets for leveling up. As soon as the firewood scarcity, boom, it goes up fifty bucks a quart. As soon as there's market like you fill that market demand, boom, it goes down by you know, it instantly reacts because it it's not it's not bound by anything, but as far as who's willing to bring it to you. So if we can fill the current demand and bring that that massive, that that scarcity demand down and level it out somewhere um Then we can provide mix loads. People need to burn mix. We we can't just do this for I want fur. I want dry fur. I want to bring you dry fur too, but it's not enough. We need to burn the mix, the hemlock, the alder, and the fur blowdown that we get. And this first round here, of course, everything is going to be green. But ideally, we're going to buy more wood than we can market more wood than we can process and bring to market which allows us to leave some logs we'll we'll deck those up and let them sun dry and season for next year and then we will always have the optional green or dry wood moving forward and then every year you know and also the market capacity like does anybody know how many cords get burnt on this island i've heard heard some statistics but you know statistics on cortez are like who answers them (laughs) really you know so we would like to you know as as probably a group of contractors go out it take the whole pile, process it up, feed our market demands. We all have our own sort of client lists and everything and and we'd like to get it out there and 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 see if we can provide it and and moving forward, this was a tiny, tiny little cut block. this was this, this tiny by comparison, so hopefully with the future moving forward in the larger cut blocks like we'll be able to supply the demand and to always have that nice dry fiber accessible to people it's going to take us a couple of years to get there and they have to invest in us by buying our wet greenwood this year
0: i i appreciate that response too cuz i feel like as a community um that we it's right. It's like a give take. Like if we want to have a sustainable firewood option, then we need to learn about like, okay, we don't get to just, you know, burn fur. And we actually have to take responsibility for being prepared enough to, you know, season our own wood and, um, and on and on. And I remember, uh, one time, uh, Mark talking about, um, the BTUs and the different kind of firewood, Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and how, like, in the end, like, why alder made so much sense. Because we can grow it. It's less damaging to, to use. And for the amount of time that you're putting into it, you're getting a lot more back out. It, did I explain that well enough?
2: <laughs> it's, it's about, land ma- like, land size per BTU. So if you, like, totally level a patch, like, total farm field, and it comes up alder. The alder is going to produce more BTUs per hectare than fur actually will, because the fur grows slower, but the fur burns hotter. So you have that give and take. The problem with the alder is you get more ash and it burns faster. You're constantly feeding the stove and you throw five pieces of alder in there and go to bed while well, your fire's not really going to be going in the morning. But hence the mix. You got your fur for overnight, you got your hemlock for when you want it, it's the mid grade, and then the alder's the fast burning, ashy stuff. Sorry, we gotta throw it in there. It's gotta go somewhere. We can chip as much of it as we want, but a lot of it's gonna end up in the firewood supply.
0: I I want to do a whole focus just on (laughs) on building the perfect firewood or the community responsible firewood mix. Um, All right. So we only have a few more minutes. And I really want to know uh, your vision um, in five minutes or less of what a truly sustainable community forest um, looks like for Cortez.
2: I want to see permanently open blocks. So we open a block for a longer period of time so we can literally sell the trees off the stump so if you want a certain spec or a certain size or you want a dozen of something we can go find those on the stump because the block is open and available to us right and so we can selectively harvest those as there's a demand for them and so if there's no market we don't need to cut the tree we just leave it growing right it's like pick your own pumpkin So that, and then, and then that running down into some of our value added entrepreneurs here, making a go of it and, and producing these like merchantable wood down to, um, small wood products that are preferably reusable. That would be really sweet. Um, you know, things that are disposable, reusable that creates like a permanent thing. I mean, like there's so many wood products out there where they're beautiful and they're amazing and, and they need to be in the market, but like how many, patio chairs that are made out of wood. Are you going to buy, you, you buy a set every decade. So your marketing has to really get amped up if you're going to create a wood product that people are going to have for a long time. And so I see this like plethora of entrepreneurs making everything from those little press bricks to biochar to, you know, soil amendment piles with the chips and the nitrogen being fed into it. And, um, um, you know, uh, bark mulch available. And sort of that little like, you know, um, thing going on and then this community having satisfied its appetite for firewood would be (laughs) amazing. Believe it or not, I believe it can happen. And, uh, and also job continuity for, for the boots on the ground, um, for, for us to be in the logging environment, it it's, it's you have to gear up like even the stuff that doesn't require you to actually cut the trees the first aid kits that all need to the fire extinguishers that need to be all up to date the organization of just getting everything from point a to point b you get there then you put your chains on and you get all geared up and then you open like there is our poor pickups just get beat to crap and there's so many outlying factors that you just don't see so for us to get geared up to do something to to get it out in the community for us there is a a pretty significant effort and and for us to just have that job continuity to work into maybe doing a commercial logging project and then going straight into a fire mitigation thinning silviculture project which is low volume so you're a lot lighter so you can work in the rainier seasons because you're not going to create so much mud so we can carry those silviculture projects out through the winter and then in the springtime, you know, somewhere in between nesting season and fire season, we can get another little commercial harvest in. And so that creates that job continuity. So if we've got these entrepreneurs who want to actually physically work in the forest, you want to be a faller, you want to be a chainsaw guy, you want to be a bucker, whatever participation you want to have within that community forest, you actually have the the kind of sense to make an investment because there is some job continuity. It's not like all or nothing for two months and then okay go home go figure out what to do with the other ten months of the year so for me it's like start to finish seed to the saw right from I think we should be growing our own trees and all the way down to I think we should be making every wood product fathomable and shipping it out to market and seeing what sticks to the wall
0: I love it thank you so much uh, I really appreciate you um, I feel like really inspired listening to you and Mark. And I know a lot of people right now have like, they've been begging me. They're like, I just want some good news. And this to me feels like really good news. Like we just like, we have a global pandemic going on. We do? I know, who would know? Because we have so many creative, loving, smart, local thinkers, you know, neighbors just being like, we're figuring it out for ourselves for the long time, for our, our natural community and for our human community. Um, not that those two things are divided, but sometimes they feel like it. So thank you for, for being part of that. I really appreciate it.
2: Awesome. Thank you. Always stoked to be part of a- folk you and all of the awesomeness that's involved and i would like to invite everyone to head on to the timeline line and get the uh click the link for the ccfc agm on november 23rd it's a zoom meeting um but zoom is uh pretty simple and straightforward if you can get through it and hopefully we can get an attend we need enough uh, people to get on there so hope to see you there
0: awesome thank you check it out That's it for another edition of Folk U Radio. If you'd like to learn more about Folk U or subscribe to our podcast series, visit us at folku.ca. That's f o l k u.ca. Folk U is produced at CKTZ eighty-nine point five FM Cortez Radio.ca little brains almost always
3: got something lame it's got to say
0: this show is brought to you by the local journalism initiative the program funds